Welcome to Steelcast, Tata Steel UK's podcast about all things related to steel, our processes, our products, our customers, our people and our communities. In this latest series, we're talking to industry experts about climate change, sustainability and decarbonisation. In the first episode, we went back to basics and talked to Pete Quinn about carbon. What is it? Why does it impact the climate? And what are its sources? Next, we spoke to Paul Wheeler about the current steelmaking technologies and their use of carbon, but also about the huge advances being made in steel manufacturing and how steel makes a positive difference to our climate and to our society. In episode three, we spoke to marketing director Russell Codling, who described how the current pull for greener steelmaking is the latest in a long line of steel industry advances that have been designed to improve not only the materials' environmental credentials, but the sustainability of the whole UK manufacturing industry. And today we'll be moving that discussion forward again to look at the alternative technologies the UK steel industry could consider in order to continue supporting the UK manufacturing supply chains, and in the process contribute massively to government targets and society and customers' expectations of decarbonisation. I'm joined today by someone who must be as well versed in this topic as anyone in the country. Richie Hart is Tata Steel UK's Process Technology Manager and has been studying alternative steelmaking technologies for a number of years. Richie, a very warm welcome to the pod. Thank you very much for having me on. So Richie, yeah, lots to get through today. And, you know, those who will have tuned into our previous episodes that uh, I've just described, hopefully have started now to understand just how essential steel is for society. You can't imagine a society without steel. It's ubiquitous. But also the essential role steel plays in tackling climate change. But also people will start to understand that despite that necessity, it's also responsible for around 8% of the world's CO2 emissions. And I guess my first, maybe the most fundamental question for you is, can the world have its cake and eat it? Uh, That's a pretty good question to start with, yes. Uh, I think steel as an industry, it has this tagline which is called difficult to abate, but it's not, it doesn't have the tagline impossible to abate. It's difficult to abate. So I think you could probably lay it out that there's three different ways that you can abate our CO2. One is we can carry on using equipment that looks a lot like our current equipment, still using fossil fuels and capture the gases. So you still have your steel and you're dealing with the gases. Uh, the other is to move to a new technology. So we don't produce the gases in the first place. Uh, We're energy intensive industry, so that energy has to come from somewhere. So that would all have to be renewable energy. Or you could not bother making steel. Uh, But I think that's a a fundamental point, and you you made it at the start. Maybe we thought years ago that there'd be some new material that would come along that would replace steel and have better properties. But, But the reality is the green credentials of steel are phenomenal. There's nothing coming along to replace it. Uh, so I really think not making steel is not an option. Yeah, and certainly for any country, I guess, uh, Richie, you know, who chooses not to have a native steel industry, the option is to to import steel either as a raw material. I mean, we already do it in 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 uh, things like cars and washing machines and all sorts of things, don't we? We 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 import steel as a material, but that would be a a, a big choice for a government to make to to not have a native steel industry, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, steel steel is one of those primary uh, primary industries uh, which sits at the foundation of so much else that goes on in the economy. 
So it, it is it is really important for the economy that you have a, a local supplier that can be attuned uh, to the market. But there's also the steel making and there's uh, iron making. Uh, but you say it's it's where do you sit in that value chain? Uh, you know, we now import iron ore where we used to have our own iron ore. You know, we import yeah. we import pellets rather than importing iron ore. You know, we import coke rather than importing coal. So so yeah. we're already maybe moving along in that value chain. But but fundamentally, what what the UK manufacturing industry wants is a local supplier. Uh, that can meet their needs uh, and be responsive and work with them. Yeah, and I think that's what Russell was telling us in a previous podcast about the demand from customers and the increasing desire for local supply chains. But, you know, if you go back to those three options you just outlined there about, you know, either capture the gases, you find a technology that doesn't produce the gases or you don't make steel. You know, not one of those options is, well, just keep doing what we do. The as is is not an option anymore, Richie, is it? Uh, I, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, we started on the on current decarbonisation journey probably 2017. You know, we came out of the crisis of 2015-16 when we were up for sale, and we kind of we felt like there was a need there to really start to address this decarbonisation agenda. What was startling was that all of the fundamental research work that was done in the early 2000s on this. You know, uh, so we talk about the technologies like Hisana and, and top gas recycling. That they were all done in the early 2000s. And even in 2017, when we started, people were saying, well, yeah, nothing's as efficient as a blast furnace, is it? You know? But by 2022, the world has changed absolutely, completely and utterly. And it's worth thinking, why, why, why is it different now to what, what it was in the 2000s when we already knew everything that we know now, you know, and there's just been that sea change. And, and I think we're actually seeing that coming from consumers and we're seeing it coming from society. Uh, the pressure that we're seeing from automotive for low carbon steel is huge because people don't want to be buying, uh, you know, a car which has got a high CO2 footprint, not only in its use, but in its construction uh, as well. Uh, the construction sector is really, really driving that agenda, you know, because uh, if a big corporate are having a new tower block built, they want to know what the CO2 footprint of it is. You know, Russell said earlier, you we are losing business now against uh, competitors who are offering lower CO2 steel. So, so I think the sea change is, is uh, absolutely has happened. Uh, we're beyond a tipping point. But continuing as is is not much. Yeah, and it's extraordinary, like you say, how quickly it's happened. Because, again, you know, the the move to reduce the environmental impact of of materials is is been long standing. You know, we've been, um, you know, go back to my childhood, and we were washing out milk bottles, and you know, but more recently, you know, the recyclability of steel packaging was very big in the in the nineties, for example. And so it's always been that consciousness. But as you say, in the last three or four years, this has really got to something in a kind of completely different scale hasn't it and it is consuming society and the need to change so quickly is quite a difficult one isn't it yeah uh, yeah absolutely uh and some of that is is driven by policy uh, but i'd say it's it's more it's it's more driven by society and, and, and consumer behavior yeah but if, and if, but again you know the, you, you're saying the pressure has come on quite quickly but the 
the technological change is not just in the steel industry, any any energy intensive industry, and arguably the IT sector in terms of the amount of uh, CO two produced with with servers and electronics and even mobile phones and stuff. But the 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 change in the steel industry that can't happen overnight, can it? You know, so what what are we doing now, and what have we got to do in the next few years? before we can implement some seismic change in our production technologies. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, our industry is a massively capitally intensive one with long uh, cycles of investment. Uh, you know, you're not going to make an investment this year uh, and, then, and then make a transition away from that in, in only one or two years' time. Uh, so it's really important that we make the most of our existing asset during that, that transition. Uh, and we talk about what those changes might be. So uh, at the moment, we generate uh, power on site from our waste gases. We've just spent a uh, big investment in, in a new, highly efficient uh, turbo alternator so that we maximise our electricity generation. Uh, we're always trying to minimise our coke rate in the blast furnace because the blast furnace is the major producer of CO2 and, and coke is... is 80% carbon, so that's any any attempts on minimising coke rate reduce our CO2. We currently use around about 17% scrap in the BOSS plant. That might come as a surprise to people, but we were one of the largest users of scrap in the UK uh, already, as is. By increasing the amount of scrap that we're using in the BOSS plant, again, that reduces the amount of output from the BOSS furnace. That reduces our CO2 uh, footprint. Uh, and there's there's other things that we're looking at, uh, and we see ArcelorMittal as one of our competitors. They've been very successful actually in branding all of these efficiency measures that they're, they're taking uh, and offering into the market a green steel, saying, well, actually, if we've reduced our CO2 by 10%, we can sell 10% of our steel as green steel, and they're labelling it as X-carb, and they're charging a premium in the marketplace for that. You know, people are willing to pay good money for green, you know, green steel because then in their building or in their car, they can put a, a sticker on it and, and they'll sell it for more. You know? So, there's, so you know, the sea change in, in CO2, part of that is about being driven by consumers, but you can take advantage of that now. Yeah, and 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 Paul Wheeler mentioned uh, lots of the other things that are going on, variable speed drives here and LED lighting there, but and and this might be an impossible question, Richie. But when people are saying, you know, we're going to reduce CO two by eighty percent by this date or ninety percent by the other date, what talk, all those things you've just talked about there? What what sort of level of percentage reductions are they making? Is it single figures or is it more sizable than that? Yeah, re realistically. Uh you're into single single digit percentages for those incremental improvements uh, really to make the kind of 30 percent that we need to do uh, then it's it's some fundamental changes in processing technology. yeah i mean it's still a huge amount of co2 being reduced in, in terms of what goes into the atmosphere but percentage wise yeah this is not going to be enough on its own is it yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, you know, we're talking about this time scale issue about how long it takes to make technology change or to make these big investments, as you said, a capital intensive industry. And there was an article recently in The Times, I think, by Ed Conway, who said, paraphrase slightly, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. Because, you know, if you want to build gigafactories for battery production or you want to build 
wind towers or you know solar farms you're going to need steel for all of those things and you know until you've got that new technology you're going to need more of it probably than less and therefore you're kind of going to have this bow wave of, of carbon do you recognize that argument yeah yeah ab- absolutely yeah yeah where does the steel come from for the uh, for the for the renewable uh, economy and and the reality is yeah it's, it's it, it currently it's coming from uh fossil fuel powered factories like ours. Uh, yeah, so there needs to be a bit of a maturity in the debate about how quickly this transition can come, but there also needs to be pressure to make sure that the transition comes you know, as as quickly as possible. You know, I think it's the old Mitchell and Webb uh, sketch, you know, are, are we the bad guys, you know? <laughs> and we need to be moving, we do need to be moving, but also we can't just be portrayed as the bad guys because there is massive demand for steel in order to make this change. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, that was an interesting kind of, kind of diversion. And But getting back to that point, if we kind of rule out the point, as you said, about we need steel everywhere, if you rule out the, the well, let's not make steel at all, you know, the, the, there's two options left from your initial uh, uh, position, which is saying you know, either capture the gases and do something with them, or you find a way of making steel without producing them. So what choices do we have uh, technology-wise in, in those two areas, Richie? Well, let's try and break it down a bit. If we take the, the, the first bit, so capturing the gas, what does, what does that actually mean? Uh, and, and that in itself can be seen in two, two separate parts. So first of all, the gas that comes off the top of a blast furnace, yeah, it's 25% CO2, about 25% carbon monoxide, and about 50% nitrogen. So that's not suitable for storage under the ground. You know, you've, you've, you've got to have something which is 100% CO2. The, the carbon monoxide in there is very valuable. It's still energy rich. At the moment, we'll send that to our power plant to generate electricity from it. In the future, that electricity can come from renewable sources. That's probably, we're only operating at about 30% efficiency uh, for that energy. What's more efficient, is that we can convert that CO into hydrogen by mixing it with water, and anyone can do the chemistry, it's fairly straightforward. So you generate vast amounts of hydrogen from that gas, and you end up with a stream which is very rich in CO2, which is very suitable then for stripping and storage. So so just to pause a moment on that for the non-chemists who are listening. So, you know, water is H2O, and you mix that with uh, carbon monoxide, CO, and then the hydrogen, the oxygen splits out from the water and sticks to the, the carbon monoxide to make carbon dioxide, and then you're left with hydrogen. That's exactly it, yeah. Yeah, you need quite a big uh, bit of kit to do it, but that's basically... Uh, Does it take any input of energy to do that? Does it need to be done under heat or pressure? or? Yeah, uh, it, it needs heat uh, input, but that can come from uh, from the gas itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. You said it's not something I'd, I'd heard of before. I was kind of in my mind wondering whether you just put a, you know, like a O-level chemistry lessons and you put a rubber pipe and bubble it through the water and something happens. But it's probably a bit more complex than that, isn't it? No, it is more complex. And we've actually been part of a research uh, program uh, in Sweden, a European research program, uh, where we're combining the water gas shift with the CO2 separation mm. as well. Because what you... what what you then need to do is you need to get rid of the nitrogen and you need to separate out the hydrogen and you need to get the CO2 to go in the right direction so it's suitable for storage. So that whole water gas shift plus separation and it, 
and it might be one of the things from there is actually we were looking at not going to pure hydrogen, but to leave some of the carbon in there and you end up with methanol. Right. Which can then be used as a fuel. Obviously, you're not capturing all of the carbon at that point, so that carbon will find its way into the atmosphere at some point. Yeah. And it can reduce your conversion costs. But either way, you're left with a whole load of CO2 that you've still got to do something with. That's right, yeah. And and, and I just jotted down here. I mean, we from one of our blast furnaces, uh, we reckon it's about 120 megawatt of hydrogen that we would be generating from that. So if you put that in the scale of hydrogen that people are talking about from uh, electrolysis, you know, it's probably enough to uh, to heat 100,000 homes, or people are talking about hydrogen for lorries for heavy transport. But I guess even that's a you know, significant investment on top of, you know, our, our already capital intensive uh, steelmaking route, isn't it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And that's probably the first part, you know, uh, so you yeah. asked me about, about uh, carbon capture. Now we've got a pure stream of CO2. We've then got to find somewhere to put that. Yeah. So people might be aware that the government announced uh, just before uh, COP26, actually, uh, two winners of a competition for CO2 storage uh, in the UK. Uh, the one that's closest to us is in Morecambe Bay near Liverpool. Yeah. So that's an old gas field. Uh, so it's essentially there's, there's been a big uh, there's been a big pump pumping gas out of that field for the last uh, 10 or 15 years. The field is now empty. They'll, they'll actually reuse the existing asset uh, and reverse the pump and pump CO2 down into that what is known to be a gas-tied storage area. And another is, does it go in as a liquid or a gas, Richie? It just goes in as a gas. One of the issues for us then is how would we get it there? Uh, and, and the debate is uh, it has to go by boat, essentially, uh, which I, when the first time I heard that, I was quite astounded. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But when, when you bear in mind that a large amount of the UK's natural gas comes by boat from Qatar or North America or, or already, you know, I mean, Milford Haven is a, a major natural natural gas importer, as is so. Uh, the scheme that we're looking at there is about CO2 shipping from Milford Haven mm. around the coast up to Morecambe Bay. Uh, and you would probably actually uh, reduce the CO2 to a liquid, so you'd... Uh, You'd take it cold enough that it would be liquefied. Uh, the boats are slightly more expensive, but uh, uh, you can get more on a boat compared with just compressing it. Wow, I, I, it's fascinating. I had no idea that nat natural gas was shipped around the, the globe. I just assumed it all came in pipelines. So I guess you, you're arguing almost a return journey, aren't you, for the uh, for the ships? Yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a period where we were looking at CO2 is used in the in the oil and gas industry, in actual fact, for enhanced oil recovery. So there's, there's a scheme in the States where they've got a, a, a coal-fired facility which produces hydrogen, <laughs> uh, but its main product is CO2 because they then want to push that back under the ground in order to push more oil out. So a lot of these technologies are, are, are there, uh, yeah. and they were interested in shipping CO2 on, re on return journeys for use in the oil and gas industry in, in, in the States. It's fascinating, this whole idea of kind of burying it, it kind of seems counterintuitive and you know and it was that long ago people were talking about flying nuclear waste into space and it all seemed rather temporary about and 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 this feels quite a bit the same you know you just got this 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 problem with co2 you're just going to bury it and you wonder whether space will run out and all that sort of stuff but you know is that is that a financially viable option i guess in the short term maybe i don't know longer term 
Yeah, I guess it's, I guess there's two parts to that. One one is well, where did all the carbon come from in the first place? You know, we we dug it out of the ground. You know, it had been there for several million years. You know, so uh, you know, we put it back in the same hole and make sure that we put the lid on properly. Then, so that's that's the first part of it. Financial viability is the second part. Uh, it's going to cost you money, uh, but, but it it will cost money. And we talk about on all CO2 reduction activities, does these abatement curves. So what's the cost of reducing a ton of CO2? Uh, so there's some things like LED lights. Well, actually, everyone's got LED lights in their houses now because in actual fact, there was legislation brought in to make that so, but in actual fact, it's cheaper, you know, because they use a lot less energy uh, and they last for a lot longer. Yeah, so you have to spend some money up front, but over a period of time, you get it back because you use less electricity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, probably the next step on the, on the abatement curve is moving to wind turbines. So back in the day, wind turbines were far more expensive than natural gas. They've got bigger and more efficient. They're probably now comparable with natural gas or cheaper than natural gas. So you know that, that's the the next point for reducing CO two. Insulating your house. That's probably a very sensible thing to do, and it's probably uh, you know marginal in terms of uh, cost per CO two. And then you start getting into things that actually cost you money. So uh, moving to an electric car, converting your domestic boiler to hydrogen can cost you a lot of money. And somewhere along that curve is capturing gas from a blast furnace and yeah. storing it under the ground uh, because the blast furnace is already twenty five percent CO two. In actual fact, it's one of the more attractive uh, ways of capturing CO2 from all of the sources of CO2. But it's quite a long way down the abatement. Yeah, because it's quite a high cost to capture it. And you go, well, where does the where does the steel industry get this money back from? And I guess you'd say, well, you don't have to buy carbon credits. Uh, customers, as you explained earlier, will pay more for your products if they're green and so on and so forth. Is that what is that is that the sort of the maths behind it? Yeah, that? yeah, absolutely. Uh, the cost of steel will have to go up yeah. if you want to truly uh, reflect the, the cost of those uh, handling of those emissions. Uh, I think that's that's fairly clear. At the moment, we get free carbon credits for a large percentage of our output, and, and which keeps the price of steel relatively low. Uh, the cost of the ones that we don't get free are going up. Uh, I think I saw yesterday that it's it's up to 94 euros uh, per ton of CO2. And we produce two tons of CO2 per ton of steel. It's a lot. Uh, so so it is a lot. So if we remove all of our free credits, then you're basically looking at the cost of steel going up by 200 euros per ton. Yeah. And the consequence of that would be if somebody uh, in another region of the world that doesn't have to pay that would just undercut us and, and the European steel industry would shut overnight. Yeah, and as a market economy will prove, you know, the, the, yeah. the, that cost incentive is a massive one for yeah. industries, isn't it? And, the, you know, I know you talk about this abatement curve and the different steps. And I guess if we bring that back to sort of energy and steel making, you know, there's some there's some steps to be taken, aren't there, about moving from different energy or power sources along that curve rather than necessarily, you know, making maybe unrealistic leaps yeah i think so and i think you know we talked there about wind power of course you know the, the the uk's electricity grid is very low co2 
you know, compared even with Europe, but definitely against the rest of the world. Uh, and one of the reasons for that it was the big dash for gas, you know, uh, because we moved away from coal-fired power to gas-fired power. Uh, and, and that that movement has resulted in a low CO2 electricity grid for us. Yeah. It's those gas stations being replaced by offshore, onshore wind. Yeah. Which is the next step. And if we, if, but if we get back to the sort of steel making process, because you know we've kind of talked about blast furnaces and we've talked about electric arc furnaces, but there are other technologies, aren't there, around the world about uh, for making iron? So I know in Amalgam we we tried Hisana. You talked about the Alcos uh, uh, developments in the early two thousands. Um, people are talking about direct reduced iron. Can you explain a bit about what that is and the role that that could play in a future technology route? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Probably concentrate on direct reduced iron because it's it's the most established technology. Uh, there's about 120 million tons of capacity installed around the world uh, of, of DRI. Uh, it's gas based, so it's uh, in in the same way that we see power generation go from coal to gas. You know, that, that already there's a reduction in CO2 uh, on that. So the key thing, I guess, about uh, the DRI process compared with the blast furnace, it's, it's doing the same thing, it's, it's converting iron ore to iron, yeah. is uh, that it takes place in a solid form rather than a liquid form. So you make your iron ore into pellets, uh, you pass a natural gas through a, a big shaft that looks a bit like a blast furnace, uh, and you get solid units out of the bottom, uh, but it's iron rather than, than iron ore. So you've then yeah. got to melt those. So in general, what happens is your DRI unit gets attached to an electric arc furnace. So you're making, is iron making is the DRI unit and the blast furnace. For us, the boss vessel is the steel making unit, for them, the electric arc furnace is the steel making unit. Yeah, and that's a distinction many of our listeners may not quite get, that difference between iron and steel. Is there a, a very simple explanation of what the, the difference between the two is, uh, Richie? Yeah, I mean, well, maybe I'd say between iron making and steel making, uh, it's, it's maybe easier. Uh, what you put into an iron making process is iron ore, so it's the oxide of iron, uh, and you have to get the oxygen off the iron atoms in order to make a pure iron product. Yeah. And, and, and that's what the blast furnace does, you know, and if you go back in time, you know, with the industrial revolution, the invention of the coke-based blast furnace is what drove the, the industrial revolution. But that iron product still has a lot of carbon in it, so it'd be very brittle. Uh, it's not formable in the way that, that people wanted it to be formable. So what we then do is we have a steel making process and that reduces the carbon that's in the iron to very low levels to make steel what we know as steel today uh, and to exceptionally low levels. You know, if you wanted to make a, uh, an outer body panel for a car which is highly shaped, then, then there's a very, very low levels of carbon. Yeah, and I think it's useful just to try and define that. You know, many of our listeners will, will this will be second nature to them, but I'm sure there'll be new people listening to this who who, who that's a helpful definition. So, we've talked there a bit about DRI and the gas-based DRI, and, and I think you know there might be some hydrogen discussions to be had going forward, and the potential to use that in an arc furnace. So we talked a lot about the the blast furnace and capturing gases, but the arc furnace then is an alternative technology, but that that actually produces steel doesn't it rather than iron uh, and what's the carbon implications of of using electric arc furnace to, to melt scrap predominantly yeah i think uh 
what you see in the world is that uh, the levels of scrap, you know, the majority of steel gets recycled. Yeah. Uh, the average life of steel in use is about 40 years. Oh. So tin cans come back very quickly. Yeah. Cars come back a bit more slowly. Buildings, <laughs> very much more slowly. Uh, so what you see any region in the world, you'll see their steel consumption. So the big boom in steel consumption in the 1970s in the UK. Uh, and, and then you see that big rise in scrap coming out around 40 years later. So you, you see that. And, and now we're exporting 8 million tonnes scrap every year from just from the UK wow. and that's now going to be kind of steady state and is that because we have no facilities or few facilities in the UK I know there's a couple of art furnaces around is that because we have no facilities uh or, or not enough to because you mentioned earlier that the steel plant from the blast furnace route still uses scrap uh and the electric art furnaces uses scrap but is that the only reason it's exported rather than used domestically yeah uh part of it is because what product scrap is naturally used to making. Uh, there's a lot of rebar. Scrap is ideally for producing rebar for the construction industry and, and also for beams for construction. So a lot of what we'd call long products type, uh, can easily be made out of scrap. And the majority of scrap in the world gets used for making long products. So if you look at where our UK scrap goes, it goes to Turkey, uh, it goes to Pakistan, it goes to areas that have still got a massive construction boom going on and demand for steels for construction. What you'll see in Europe is that the demand is for higher end products, which are not so well suited for those scrap based, those scrap based processes and particularly flat products um, such as we produce. Yeah, and that's another debate and I don't know whether we have time to cover it in today's pod or not, but that concern that uh, you know, if the technology shift went towards an electric arc furnace uh, option, partly or wholly, whether we'd be able to continue supplying the markets we do as technology move forward sufficiently or, or, or are you expecting it to? Yeah, I think what we've seen in the States, you know, so that, that progression of scrap availability, uh, the States is one of the first industrialised countries have got to the point where they have a, a proliferation of, of decent quality scrap. And we've seen the rise of these mini mill operators and they're actually producing, you know, they originally were producing long products from scrap and they're now producing flat products from scrap. And it started back in 1989 in Crawfordsville with Nucor uh, and they, they developed this thin slab uh, casting technology. It's very, very compact, highly productive mini mill operation, which was capable of melting scrap with electricity, which is expensive, and producing the bottom end flat product. You know, the integrated works said, "Well, that's not a problem because we don't make any money on the commodity. <laughs> they can carry on." Uh, Ten years yet later, they were producing a slightly better quality. A couple of the integrated works shut, uh, and we've seen that progression now over those thirty years. And really, those mini mill operators in the states. They're now 70% electric arc operation in the States, and they're really snapping at the heels of the integrator. To the point where US Steel, who are the bastions really of integrated steel making, uh, took the plunge last year and bought out one of the new startups, Big River Steel. 
you know, and, and they have what they describe as a best of both strategy. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say, Richie, because, you know, we, if we're in danger of looking at this as a binary decision. It's like you choose a technology and that's what you're going to do. But is there a sort of a hybrid model, you know, short term or medium term, even if not long term, where you put different technologies next to each other? Yeah, I think uh, I, I think that's what we what we see in the states very much at a national level. Uh, you know that the the, the mini mills were able to address the bottom end of the market, and the integrateds were taking the, the differential uh, product at the top end of the market. What, what turned out is that the mini mills were making a lot more money <laughs> than the integrateds. You know, I'm talking a lot more money, and and they've just continued to erode away and erode away. Uh, and I think if you look at that that hybrid model at a national level, it's difficult to think about how that would work at a UK level in flat products where the total market for the UK is less than 5 million tonnes. Flat products and the certain sectors of that, you know, uh, you know you're never going to be able to access because people want multiple suppliers. So how do you manage, you know, we've got two blast furnaces now. By 2050, we won't have two blast furnaces. Mm. I, don't, I haven't met anyone who's arguing that, you know. So we have a, we're facing a transition. What we can't see is the transition that we've seen in the States, which would be a new entrant come in, say, at Teesside, mm. and starting to work away at commodity grades. You know, and taking our legs from underneath us and eventually working our way up. So a managed transition and a hybrid approach is really, really important in whatever route we take uh, over, the, over the next 28 years as it is now that we have left. Yeah, yeah, because of course, it, you know, I've mentioned the words before, but it's such a capital intensive industry. Any kind of hybrid route, you're like doubling your capital because you've got two routes. You know, you, you, you may say, look, if you're going to continue a blast furnace, you're still going to need a coke ovens and a centre plant and everything goes behind it. And if you're going to have an electric art furnace, you need a scrap route, which runs in parallel. So that feels like a quite a costly solution. But then you can't just turn the tap off overnight, can you? Yeah, and I think that's what's facing all of the Europeans doing. And sometimes you can look at our own situation and scratch your head and try and work out, you know, how are we going to plot our way through this and think that everyone else is in a better position. But uh, all, all steel makers, you know, if you just made a major, major investment in your heavy end, and that's uh, something that you're going to have to commit to. Yeah, it's a really difficult one. I'm conscious of time, Richie, because we've talked about so much today. But there's another topic I just want to pick your brains on, if I might. Uh, before we finish, because I think it's fundamental both to the energy debate and to the um, carbon dioxide steelmaking debate. Is 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 this word hydrogen, the topic of hydrogen, right? What role is hydrogen going to play, both in terms of energy generation, if you go down an electric arc furnace or something similar, but also in terms of, you know, you mentioned the DRI route or or other technologies. Where does hydrogen sit in all this? Because it's, it's a topic everyone's talking about, and I'm not sure any, any of us are, are very clear on, on whether it has a potential or not. Yeah, and I probably was remiss in my answer earlier about DRI, you know, because a lot of a lot of the European competitors are announcing DRI investments. If you look about five years, everyone was announcing carbon capture investments. Now, all those plans are gone, uh, and, and they're announcing hydrogen DRI investments. Uh, alongside an electric arc furnace. Mm. And the big question is, where's the hydrogen going to come from? So they'd use hydrogen instead of gas 
instead of gas into the DRI unit. Yeah. So so natural gas DRI maybe is a stepping stone then to a hydrogen DRI. Yeah. So again, chemically you'd have you'd have iron ore, so FeO, yeah. and then you put hydrogen across it, and then the hydrogen combines with the oxygen to make water vapor yeah. to leave the iron behind rather than carbon. That's absolutely right. But the challenge is if you're making your hydrogen from electricity, where does your electricity come? Bearing in mind the fact that the UK is still investing in natural gas power stations, you know, there is not an hour of the year when we don't have a natural gas power station running. So essentially we're going to generate electric with gas to produce hydrogen to displace gas. You know, so th this is a very efficient way of doubling your CO2 emissions. <laughs> you know, um, you're, you're much better just to use gas in the first place. You know, yeah. With all the problems. So, so it's really important to think about where that hydrogen is coming from. And it's completely linked to government energy policy and decarbonizing the grid. So decarbonizing the UK electricity grid. Uh, the ambition is to be there by 2035. So in my mind, that's the kind of time scale that you're looking at when uh, electrolysis of, of hydrogen uh, from renewable energy starts to come onto the, onto the table as a realistic option. Developing the technologies to work it at pilot scale and demonstration scale, very, very important. But it's, it's, it's something in, in the future. And I think hydrogen as well is a great storage medium. So we will end up in the point where we have excess renewables in the summer yeah, and then shortage of energy in the winter. Yeah. You know, so probably by 2030, we'll be running gas power stations in the winter, not in the summer. You know, So hydrogen, and I think we talked about uh, INET in the northwest with carbon capture, hydrogen will play a very key role there for, for making sure that uh, energy, electricity is carbon neutral right, through the year. You know? so, so hydrogen... Yeah, it, it's a it's a vector, it's an energy vector, but it has to come from somewhere. And if it doesn't come from renewables, then it's not decarbonised. Yeah, and and you, and you and you veer off if you're not careful into the whole uh, the whole energy debate about it's all very well having wind turbines and solar farms, but but while the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, you've got no way of storing it, and that's a whole yeah. other debate, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the other thing you, you you need to think about what's the point of differentiation in the UK. As well, you know what battles and what what battles are you going to win? I'll give an example. There's a scheme uh, in Morocco now, which is uh, guaranteed electricity availability from solar, photovoltaics, wind with battery backup, wow. five gigawatts at ten dollars per megawatt hour. You know, full renewable, full reliable. You know, if you look at what's the long-term aspiration for offshore wind in the UK maybe $40 per megawatt hour. So really to understand some of the fundamentals about how to work an energy intensive industry like ours in a region of the world which might not be competitive in terms of renewable energy. So making sure we make the right the right choices there. Yeah, but I guess it's, re it's reasonably straightforward and I say this as, as no expert, but, but to, to get energy from Morocco to the UK is not beyond the wit of man though, is it? Yeah, uh, so so the project, and anyone can Google it, it's called X-Link. So the plan is to take uh, a DC electric cable, high voltage, uh, 3,800 kilometers from Morocco to Pembroke Dock wow. to feed 
the UK grid. And they say that they can provide electricity to the UK grid at $60 per megawatt hour with a higher uptime than Hinkley Point, $30 a megawatt hour cheaper. That's the proposal. But that puts some context in terms of you know, how cheap energy in those North African, Middle Eastern regions is going to be and how they're going to be something of a powerhouse of renewable energy going forward. One of the other ways of, of moving energy around the planet is to move iron rather than iron ore, you know? So what you'll see in the Americas, in the mini mills, is they import pig iron from regions of the world that have got low energy costs, like Brazil, uh, and then they just melt it in their arc furnaces close to the market and serve the market. Yeah, listen, Richie, it's fascinating stuff. I know we've been going on far too long, but it's such a big topic and there's so many angles for it, and I'm sure we'll get you back on the pod another time as things move forward um and i'm sure there'll be lots of questions coming out of this pod and uh, and more topics to talk about in the future i'm incredibly grateful for taking us through it so, you know certainly learned a lot today and i hope our listeners uh, have as well you know talking about all the technology options the different energy options you know the the geographical and global options about uh, materials and energy it's been absolutely fascinating and um, i'm very very grateful for you to for joining us today thank you very much for having me so uh, it's a hugely complex issue with some massive decisions to be made financially, environmentally, legislatively, from a customer's perspective and from the people within the industry and their communities. I hope that after today's episode, you, the listeners, will at least be a little better informed about the basis on which some of those decisions might be made. So thanks for listening to this episode of Steelcast. If you want to keep up to date with the latest happenings in Tata Steel UK, and in this series, our journey towards decarbonisation, why not subscribe through Podbean, Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 